uh, turn with me to Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Um, we're going to be talking this morning about how not to be a dysfunctional family. How not to be a dysfunctional family. Um, imagine you were writing up a kind of a storyboard for a TV or a movie family, uh, dysfunctional TV, movie, uh, TV or movie family. You would probably put something like this to describe the nature of the relationships. Um, the members of the family are never sure they can trust each other because they're known to stretch the truth, to be evasive, and to flat out lie to each other. Um, they're not a very peaceful group to be around. They're always on edge, sometimes openly frustrated and hostile with one another. Uh, things go missing. You can't leave your purse or your backpack anywhere around unattended because it's like the metro station in Paris and it will disappear because people are constantly taking things from one another. Uh, there's, there's a culture in the family of verbal mockery. So everyone's constantly cutting each other low, making fun of each other, pointing out problems and criticisms. Uh, members are offended. To go along with that, people are easily offended. Um, they're, they're constantly resentful and bitter, uh, talking trash behind each other's backs, and just flat out malicious sometimes. Well, these are not descriptions of the family on Arrested Development or The Simpsons. This is actually the descriptions that Paul the Apostle uses and the Bible uses to talk about ways that the church is tempted to live out its family life. Um, the book of Ephesians, which we are studying together, paragraph by paragraph, section by section, started in the fall with Ephesians 1, and we're just kind of moving our way through, studying it, section by section, chapter by chapter, and then, and then each paragraph and verse, and just really looking at what it says to us. This was actually a letter that was written by a man named Paul in about AD 62, and he's writing this letter to a group of Christians, a group of Christians called the church that he had actually planted as a church about seven years before, and he's writing this letter to them as he's been captured and has been put in prison, is awaiting trial in Rome. He's appealed to Caesar for, for his uh, wrongful imprisonment, and so he's in Rome under house arrest, and he's writing letters. He's finally, after decades of tireless gospel ministry, got a moment to breathe, and he's writing a letter to this group of people he loves. And as he's written this letter throughout, we see that he's reminding them to praise God because God has blessed them and forgiven them and adopted them as his children. We see that in chapter 1, and, and that he reminds them that he's praying for them that they would have spiritual power and spiritual insight into God's hopes, God's hope and God's riches and, and the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Um, he reminds them that Jesus was executed as a criminal, and after that, even though he was executed and put in the ground and buried, that God raised him from the dead, and that that same power is available to them. And that that same reality has happened to them, that as Christ was raised physically and literally from the dead, all those who trust in Christ are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. He reminds them that they weren't just saved 
for themselves and by themselves. And they, their relationship with God is not just a one-on-one relationship. That it's a family relationship. That God has saved them vertically. He has reconciled them and forgiven them and, and adopted them individually as children. But he has brought them together collectively as this new family, this new multi-ethnic body called the church of Jesus Christ that's made up of people from all backgrounds and all socioeconomic situations and male and female, people who were really religious, people who were irreligious, people who knew a lot about the Bible, people who knew nothing about the Bible were brought together into this new family. And he reminds them that God's purpose is to save people and to bring together this body called the church and that they're called in this body to unity and to diversity in the midst of, of, of that city in Ephesus, like, like we are called to be the church, a united church in the midst of our diversity here in South Florida. Therefore, he says in verse 25 of chapter 4, therefore, in light of all of that, and specifically in light of what we saw last week, what we saw in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, to, to put off the old humanity, the old man, the old self, and to put on the new. Therefore, in light of all that God has done for you, in light of the fact that you're part of God's new family, whether you're black or white or brown or rich or poor or male or female or old or young or liberal or conservative, therefore, don't live like a dysfunctional family. You are God's family, and here is how you are called to live. Before we go any further, I'm going to tell you two things to keep in mind, and then we're going to pray and then get into the text. The first thing, this primarily applies to God's family, the church. Now, I think in this we can see implications and application for our own families, how to not be a dysfunctional family. But the reality is God built the family as the building block of human society in the very beginning. He created humanity, he created the world, and he created men, a man and a woman to have a family. And this is the building block of society. And the family is super important and critical to what God is doing in the world. And healthy families are important and critical to what God is planning to do in the world. And God cares about your family. He cares about his family and he cares about your family family. There are two reactions and there are two kind of extremes that we see in the way people relate to the family in our culture. On the one hand is to ignore, redefine, and sort of minimize the importance of the family as God designed it to be. And we see that in our culture, the family falling apart and things being redefined that were never intended to be redefined and, and, and all of these things and the, the family, the disintegration of the family. And on the other hand, in, a res- in response to that, and sometimes an overreaction to that, there's been an idolization of the family. There's been an elevation of the family to fundamental primary importance. And God doesn't want you to fall into either error. He cares about your family, your family matters, and he wants your family to be healthy. But he also wants you to know that your primary identity is not whether your last name is Slavich or whatever your last name may happen to be. Your nuclear family is important and critical to God's purposes and, and, and what God wants to happen in the world. But it is subordinate to what he is intending and purposing through his family called the church. You know, in, in certain parts of the world, now we're blessed where we don't have to choose very often. 
between our nuclear family and our spiritual family. We don't have to choose between our legal, biological, adopted family and our church family. We don't have to choose because often the members are the same. So my family are all Christians. They're all part of God's family, the church. And so my spiritual family and my nuclear family are not in competition. But in many parts of the world and in many times throughout history, that's not been the case. So if you go into a place in a majority Muslim context, for someone to become a Christian means that they choose the family of God over their family of origin. That if you're pressed to the wall to choose, that is the priority, and that's God's priority. So in this church, we have lots of different kinds of families. We have lots of young families with lots of young kids. We have older families. We have, we have grandparents. We have all sorts of diverse arrangements of family life in this church. And I want you to know that these things apply to your family, but not to idolize your family over and above what God is saying about his family, his eternal family, your eternal family. The second thing um, to recognize about these, these we're going to see five temptations and five dysfunctions of a family in Ephesians, the end of chapter 4, and to be encouraged because the mere fact that he's calling them not to live like this means that maybe they have slipped into these problems or maybe they're tempted to live like this. The very nature of a command in the Bible implies the grace of God and an opportunity to repent of that sin. Because a command is there implying that if you repent, that is to turn away from that sin and turn toward God and Christ and what He is offering, that God will forgive you and He will cleanse you and He'll offer you fresh, a fresh beginning. The mere fact that these commands are in the Bible means that there is hope if you have slipped into one of these dysfunctions or if a church has slipped into one or more of these dysfunctions. With those things in mind, let's pray. And then we'll look at five ways to avoid being a dysfunctional family. Oh, Lord, you know that um, my words are just feeble and fallible, and your word is eternal and powerful. So I pray your word would speak, your spirit would speak. Um, you know, I've prepared uh, notes and things that I think you want me to say in light of this text, but I just ask your spirit to have freedom to speak to edit me, to, to bring to mind things that I should say that I haven't thought to say and to edit out things that are prepared to say that I don't need to say, Lord. And you would apply this to the hearts of your people, to their individual families and to our church family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First way to avoid being a dysfunctional family, stop lying and start telling the truth. Ephesians 4.25, therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth. Now, this is a quote from the Old Testament. Each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Here we see the how, what, who, and why of this practice. How should we treat one another? Put aside falsehood. Put aside lying. This includes outright lying, like just telling a bald-faced lie, which our kids have all done to us if we have kids, and you know they just smile at us and just lie to our face. It includes that, but I think the temptation might be more to be evasive or deceptive or to tell partial truths. 
You know, Satan, when he approached Eve in the garden, he didn't tell her a bald-faced lie. He told her a half-truth that seemed plausible. There was just enough truth in it to get her attention and make her believe it might be true. And I think maybe we are more likely to act a certain way and to speak a certain way about our lives that are not, in fact, the true and full story. To act like a Christian, we come in, you know, got our nice Sunday shirt on, got our smile, got our coffee and our donut, and to say, hey, how are you? And it's the greeting time, and you have nine seconds to talk to someone, and you're, oh, it's great, things are good. And to just act like a good Christian or act like things are going well, when in reality we're struggling with sin, things are falling apart, and things are difficult. We need to be honest. We've got to stop lying. We have to put aside deception or evasion to stop pretending and posturing like things are better than they are or that we are better than we are. To stop posting just the good stuff on Instagram. To stop acting like everything is great and just showing people the highlight reel when in reality there's the 90% underneath that is real. So the how, put aside falsehood. The what, speak the truth. Tell the truth. Now, this doesn't primarily mean to be honest about our lives. Now, that does imply that for sure. But the baseline is meaning the truth of the gospel, the truth of the scripture. Stop lying and tell the truth to one another. To tell people, you know, God, God is in control. God is powerful. God is faithful. God will not give up on you. God has a plan for you. God loves you. I know that God loves you because he sent his son Jesus to die for you and to be crucified and buried and raised from the dead. And the extent of his love is shown at the cross and in the gospel. And I'm going to speak that into your heart and into your life until you believe it. To speak the truth implies you got to know the truth. You got to read your Bible. You got to study the Bible. You got to rehearse the gospel to yourself. Often we talk about evangelism. We talk about telling other people about Jesus. The reality is we don't tell ourselves about Jesus. We don't tell our other Christian friends about Jesus. Why would we tell an unbeliever in an intimidating situation about Jesus? You got to tell yourself about Jesus. You got to tell your neighbor and your friend about Jesus. Who should we tell the truth to? Thirdly, our neighbor, the ones who are close to us, the other members of our family. This means you've got to be close enough with each other to be really honest with one another. You've got to get into each other's lives. We try to facilitate that. You know, Sunday mornings, have greeting times, get connected to have some smaller communities and groups, women's Bible study, ladies' Bible study, get connected to that, men's Bible study on Thursday mornings, other groups we're looking to start. But the reality is, at some point, it's got to be something that, that in, is initiated from within the body itself as well to build friendships and relationships. Why should we do this, finally, from this point? Because we're members of one another. We're not just an aggregate. We're an organism. An aggregate is a cluster of things that are just put together. So a bowl of Skittles is an aggregate. It's this bowl of things, it's this diverse grouping of colors that are all together. Oh, it's so pretty and it tastes so sweet, but you can take one out and it doesn't affect the others at all. That's not how the body of Christ is. We are an organism. 
An organism feels it when its toe gets stubbed. And you, you, you feel it when another part of the body is injured or removed or taken away. There is something that happens to the whole when something happens to the part. We're members of one another. That means if someone's hurting, we're hurting. So in what ways uh, do you need to stop being deceptive and evasive? Who do you need to speak the truth to? So the, the first mark of a healthy family is a family that is honest and saturated in the truth. Number two, how not to be a dysfunctional family. Be angry, but in the right way. Be angry, but in the right way. Be angry and do not sin, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. What does he command us? This is, this is a weird command. He says, be angry. This is a command. Be angry. It literally commands you, be angry. There are some things that should make you mad. It is righteous and good to get angry, and there is something wrong if you're not angry. There are things that corrupt the beauty of God's creation and God's intention for life in this world that when it happens, it should make us angry. How do we know, other than this verse, that that's true? Well, just one example. Is God, in the Old Testament, got angry when sin came into the picture? Jesus in the New Testament got angry when the people were, were using the temple for their own profit. He was righteously angry. So there are some things that should make you angry. Maybe someone makes an offhand comment that, that is, is really, really sinful and offensive. And it makes you, if you feel something inside of you, like that's not right. Someone shouldn't talk that way. It, you will get angry and you should get angry at certain things. The question is, how? How should you be angry? And the answer is, without sin. Be angry, but then there's a second command. Do not sin. Righteous anger is not passive-aggressive, but it is proactive. It says, hey, you might... I don't know if you realize, but the, what you just said, um, I don't know if you realize that that actually... That was actually racist or sexist or offensive or crude or just unkind. It made me think maybe there's something wrong with me because of my political opinions or income level or age. How should you be angry without sin, righteous, proactive? When should you be angry? And the answer is, not for long. Not for long. Immediately, but shortly. Deal with it. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't wait to deal with it. Don't let it sit. You know what bitterness is? Bitterness is anger that has rooted itself in the soil of procrastination. Bitterness is anger that has been given time to grow into something unrighteous and unhealthy. 
And even righteous anger can turn into unrighteous bitterness if it's not dealt with immediately. He says here in verse 27, there, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Literally in, in Greek, it's don't give the devil a place. Don't give the devil a place. Here's the picture I want you to think about, and that is when you don't deal with your anger immediately and righteously, it's like you're having family dinner, and you're setting, setting the places at the table, and there's seven people in your family, and you, you set all the places, and you set an eighth place, and you put a, put a plate, and you put a, make sure there's an extra chair, and you put the silverware in a cup, and, and they say, well, who's that place for? Oh, that's for Satan. We just, that's, that's Satan's spot. We got that space saved for the devil. Um, because that's how, when you don't deal with anger, we're, we're, just, we're just setting him a place. Or like, we have a reserved seat on the front row of, the, of church that says reserved. I was just at a conference this week with 5,000 people. And all the good seats had little signs on them that said reserved. And you have an empty seat. Who's that reserved for? It must be someone important. Yeah, it is. That's for Satan. That's Satan's spot in this church. That's Satan's spot in this family. How are we saving him a space? By not dealing with anger righteously and immediately. And it's true in your family. It's true in your marriage. It's true in your relationships. If you don't deal with anger immediately, it will root itself and become bitterness and sinfulness, and it will wreck things. One of the best pieces of marriage advice we got was in a card from someone that was, had our wedding gift inside of it. Our, it was like a check they gave us as a wedding gift. But the, it, the better gift was the, the advice. And it said, it was from some family friends, and it just said, you know, Danny and Laura, congratulations. Don't go to bed angry. You need each other more than you need sleep. And it's just been some of the best advice we've ever gotten. We don't let the sun drop down. We don't let anger go unresolved and turn into bitterness. I don't know, maybe there's a place where you've let that happen in your heart. Our church is new, but maybe that's a p space where you've already let that sort of seep in, even in the, the life of the church or in other relationships. So how are you going to deal with it? Number three, stop taking, start giving. Stop taking and start giving. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Now, who's this talking to? Now, this is the verse none of y'all are listening to because you think, I'm not a thief. This verse, this applies to someone else, probably the person next to me. They're a thief. That's why I'm holding, you know, stuff close, you know. Who's this applying to? What's a thief? It's anyone who takes something that doesn't belong to them. So obviously, literally, it's like the, the robber who's got like the TV, like walking out of the electronics store. It's someone who's like, a, you know, a mugger and like snatching people's stuff on the street. But it's more subtle than that as well. It can be stealing things, but it can also be stealing emotional, relational bandwidth. It can be emotional and relational theft. Maybe you're like an emotional vampire. You're just needy and you just take and take and take from other people and you don't contribute anything to their life. 
or it's just totally disproportionate where you're always taking and not giving. In the church, now this doesn't apply here very much because just to keep things up and running, everyone's got to pitch in and work hard, but maybe, maybe it's a consumerist church mindset. You show up, you receive, you don't contribute your time, your abilities, you don't contribute financially, and you just take and you take and you take. What's the solution? What does he say there? Work hard, work honestly, and do good. Work hard, do good. This is a lot more work. It's a lot more work to take than it is to give, to contribute than it is to consume. Think about the last movie you watched. Maybe it was 119 minutes long. And you sat back and you had your popcorn, whatever, you know, and you're watching it or Netflix or whatever you're doing. You're relaxing, you're watching. And for you to watch that movie and to consume that movie, A, doesn't take very long, and B, doesn't take any work. In fact, you do it instead of working. It's relaxing, it's fun, it's enjoyable, it's restful. And you're, and, and you're able, you know, to, to, to take it in and it's, it's, you know, 119 minutes later, you've consumed that whole movie. But what did it take to build and to make that movie? It took millions of hours, thousands of people, millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. And you consumed it in 119 minutes. It's so much quicker and easier to consume than it is to construct and to build up. But in the long run, building up and constructive labor is so much more rewarding and honoring to God. Why should you do all this? Why should you work hard? He says, uh, he tells us at the end of verse 28, so that you'll have something to share with someone in need, so that you can give rather than take. What are some ways that you need to stop merely taking and start giving? So, some, sometimes, there's a, there was a time, I don't know how long ago it was, but I was wearing a shirt that I really liked, I've had for a really long time, it was Sunday, and um, I didn't want to bother anyone, and so I decided to take the speaker off the stand by myself, and I went to lift it up, and then those things, if you've ever lifted one, they're like 4,000 pounds, and so I'm like holding it, and I like dropped it a little bit because it was heavy and it like ripped my shirt. And what I was doing is, other than being an idiot, um, I was robbing someone of the opportunity to serve because I just wanted to do it myself. I didn't want to put someone out. What are you taking from someone? What do you need to give? What do you need to give to? Fourth. Fourth way to not be a dysfunctional family. Speak. Not to destroy, but speak to construct. Now, often we say build up, edify. Those are the christian words, and so we can let that pass over us. But the, the picture is a construction metaphor, to build up rather than to demolish. Look at verse 29 and verse 30. No foul language should come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And, you don't gr- and don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. No foul language here literally is no word. Let no word of decay 
come out of your mouth. No word of decay. Nothing that will tear down. Only what will build up. It's not just about saying an off-color remark or making a sort of crude joke. That comes later in Ephesians chapter 5. This is words that tear people down. Criticism. Destructive words. Gossip. It's like verbal mutilation. You're just destroying someone by what you say. You refuse to filter. You know, you don't have to say everything that comes to your mind. In fact, it's a virtue not to. God says, don't let foul language come out of your mouth. What does that imply? That it's already in your head. You just got to stop it. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Instead of destroying people with your words and causing destruction with your words, give people gifts. It says there that it may give grace to those who hear. The the word grace is a gift. Is, Is having a conversation with you like a verbal Christmas morning where people, you know, you go Christmas morning and you leave with like an armful of gifts. People have just lavished them on you. Is that how people feel after talking with you for any length of time? That you've just gifted them and built them up. You have have been a constructive and life-giving presence in their life. It's interesting here that this is the context where it says not to grieve the Holy Spirit. This is actually a quote from Isaiah 63. Um, and, and, And in this context, I'll actually never forget... The, the, this because one day I was listening to Christian radio and Beth Moore was on and, uh, and she was talking and she's like, in this context, this shows that the number one way you grieve the Holy Spirit is by the way you speak and destructive patterns of speech, however you said it. And I don't know, that's just always stuck in my mind that that, that is the context that's, that's, he, that's here. That grieving the Holy Spirit, that, that the way we speak to one another is directly related to the way we relate to God and how God relates to us. It's grieving. Now, usually we think it just makes the Holy Spirit sad. And I think there's a, a sense in where it's kind of giving that picture. But, but actually, it's more than just grief. It is righteous indignation. That you are not just making the Holy Spirit sad, like, oh, I'm so sad, why can't they just be... Like a mom whose kids want, why won't they just be nice to each other? No, it is righteous indignation that the children of God would speak to each other in this way. You have offended God, the Holy Spirit, by the way you've spoken. When you've torn someone down rather than built them up. John Acuff talks about critics' math. And that goes like this. 1,000 compliments plus one insult equals one insult. The way we're wired is you can hear people say a thousand good things and it just takes one well-placed to tear you down. So my question is, do you you speak words of life, constructive and life-giving words, or are you critical? Are you cynical? Are you sarcastic? Now, my love language is sarcasm, so this hits me right here. Because, because the way I show people that I love them is I say mean things to them in a joking way. And that's, that's a problem. It's a problem. 
Do you find excuses to build people up? Do people leave a conversation with you thinking, man, that guy, he must be on something because he thinks I'm like the greatest and I know the truth, but I just feel so built up by what he said to me, by what she said to me. How can you do that? How can you make that a practice? Maybe it's just like, I'm going to say one constructive thing to every person I meet. I'm going I'm to be that, that guy, that, that person, that gal who says, I am going to build people up, even if it's a little awkward. I'm going to say, you know what? And not just like superficial compliments, but like, man, I see, I see Christ in you in this way. That, that implies, again, that you have to know someone. Because you know what? You can come up to me and tell me something nice and it will make me feel good, but I know you don't know the half of it. But when my wife says something nice, she knows all the junk and it really, it means something. When someone who really knows you builds you up with the way they speak. Number five, take out the trash talk and be kind. Verses 31 and 32. Take out the trash talk and be kind. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. This is the in case I missed anything verse. Verse 31. In case I missed anything. Bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, slander, and malice. Just in case I missed anything, just in case you think that something destructive to say is okay, it's not. None of this is okay. Take it out. It's garbage. Put it away from you. And instead be kind and compassionate. To be compassionate means to feel something deeply. It's actually the same word for like the bowels or the guts, that you feel something deeply for another person's situation, that you, that you don't just say you feel bad, but you actually genuinely do feel bad for their misfortune and for their difficulties and their suffering. Notice it doesn't say, and be nice. It says, be kind. Niceness is soft, but kindness is ferocious. It's fierce and strong and bold how God has treated us in Christ. There's nothing about what God has done for us in Jesus that was nice, but it was kind. It was fierce. It was bold. This word here for forgiving one another is used a few other times in the Bible. It says, as God in Christ forgave you, Romans 8, 32, he did not spare his own son, but offered him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Galatians 3.18. God graciously gave the inheritance to Abraham through the promise. So it's not just forgiving sin, but it is giving generously above and beyond what we deserve. It is grace. My grandma um, subscribed to an Always Read Reader's Digest. I'll never forget when I was a kid, I was probably 10 years old, she read me this story at a Reader's Digest um, that I went back and found online. It's about 
uh, a teacher. She was a nun uh, in a Catholic school. And um, she tells the story about a young man who'd been in one of her classes. And maybe you've, maybe you've heard this story. And this young man had gone off to war into Vietnam and had died. And she goes to the funeral. And uh, the family, and someone says, hey, the family, the, the Mark, the, the, his name was Mark, want, they want to see you. She goes and she finds them and, in, and they hand her his wallet. And out of his wallet, she finds this piece of paper that's been folded and taped um, over many, many times. And she knew immediately what that piece of paper was because years before in high school, she had done an exercise. The class wasn't going well, and so she had everyone in the class write the nice things and the good things they thought of the other people in the class. And then she had compiled all of those, and she had written a list and given one to each student. And Mark had kept his for all these years, taken it with him across the world into war. And they showed her this list of all the good things that other people had thought about him. And as they're standing there, some of, some of Mark's friends uh, were there as well. And they, they pulled out Mark's list. Um, and his parents just said, thank you. Mark treasured that. And another friend named Charlie said, yeah, I still have my list. It's in the top drawer of my desk. And then the wife of one of the other classmates said, Chuck asked me to put his in our wedding album. And then another friend was there named Marilyn who said, I have mine too. I keep it in my diary. Another classmate named Vicky was there and says, she had her pocketbook and says, I keep mine in my wallet just like Mark did. I think we all saved our lists. That is the power of constructive and life-giving speech. How much more should this be true in the church? The way we speak to each other matters. The way we speak to each other determines in many ways the level of our health or dysfunction as a family. The way you speak to each other in your family matters. It's more than just saying nice things. It is speaking the eternal truth that God the Father sent God the Son to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to die a sinner's death on the cross, to be buried and raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit, to be raised to the right hand of the Father as king of everything, and that anyone will turn from their sin and trust in him will be forgiven and given new and eternal life. I just want you to close your eyes. How does God want you to respond? How does God want you to respond? Maybe you're hearing the message and, and you know... Um, you know, nobody in this church knows me well enough to, to, to really know what's happening in my life. And, and the, the next step for you may be, I just need to come back next week. I need to be faithful enough that, to just show up and to start building those relationships. I need to show up for the Bible study or sign up for the ladies' Bible study or maybe even volunteer to host Maybe you know someone else who needs to get connected. Maybe you need to respond to that message that God sent Jesus 
to die, to be buried and raised from the dead so that anyone who would turn from their sin, you included, would be forgiven. Anyone who trusts in Him would be given new life. In this moment, just ask, just pray, God, how do you want me to respond? How do you want me to respond? On your connection card, there are some ways uh, to respond at the bottom, or maybe there's something that I didn't put on there, and you could write that on the back, and you can put that in the offering box, or you can just keep it between you and the Lord. And Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would help us as we um, step into these next moments and this next hours in the beginning of this week and a tired daylight saving Sunday and the first week of daylight savings and we're all dragging Lord but your spirit is here your spirit is alive Jesus is alive you are alive you are powerful and strong and you would just fill us with joy and strength to be the healthy family you've called us to be to not live in dysfunction as a church family or in our own families that you would call us and you would lead us and you would empower us to speak truth, to speak life, the gospel into the lives of one another. However you're calling each person to respond, Lord, I just pray you'd give them the boldness to do that now. In Jesus' name I pray.